that the life is against the new boy, the young against the old, the black against the white. Everything they do is to keep us in our place. Welcome to the the first episode, what do they call it? The pilot episode of the Lifers Podcast. It's a local H podcast with me, Scott Lucas. Uh, I'm the singer and guitarist of Local H. And welcome. And my co-host is uh, Gabe Rodriguez. Most of you, some of you, maybe a couple of you know Gabe from GMP Records, the record label the merch store, as well as the now defunct hardcore zine. Uh, you might also know him from playing with Local H, tour managing Local H. Uh, what else do you do, Gabe? I play a main tambourine. Yes. <laughs> Plays tambourine with Local H. And our producer is here, Ben Reiser who is the director of operations for the Wisconsin Film Festival from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's a programmer for the UW Cinematheque there, uh, and he produces for Crackpot Cinema and the Cinema Talk podcast. And he's also a co-host for 70 movies we saw in the 70s, and that's something I've been doing with Ben, and I've been filling in for the late Mike McPadden. Hello, Ben. Hey, Scott. Yeah, following in his footsteps and doing a fantastic job. Well, the other thing about Ben is he's also from the world of music. Uh, he's a singer of All About Chad and Swim Team, and he's a former <laughs> tour manager for Freddie Johnston. Uh, but your biggest payday came from being the songwriter for We're Not Gonna Make It by Presidents of the United States of America. And I know Gabe just perked up a second because he thought you were the songwriter for We're Not Gonna Take It. Happens every time. And I know he got a little excited there, didn't you, Gabe? No, I knew that uh, Dee Snyder had a big hand in that, not anybody else. <laughs> That's right. Of course <laughs> you knew that. Is that, the first, is that the first record you ever bought with your own money? Uh, that's the first vinyl I ever bought with my own money. The first, well, I wouldn't say record. So you're actually right, first record. The first cassette I ever bought was Men at Work, Business as Usual. Oh, that's right. You're a huge Men at Work fan. <laughs> yeah. I, I always tell people that, and uh, everyone thinks that I'm fucking with them, but I am not fucking with them, am I? No. And here's the other cool thing is both both you guys, both Gabe and Ben, come from a copy and print background, don't you? I do. I didn't know yeah. that about Gabe. Awesome. Yeah. Ben's being very quiet. You don't have to be that quiet, Ben. I, I was going to, well, I, listen, I'll jump right in. Uh, uh, first of all, let's go back to Men at Work, Overkill, mm -hmm. right? Is that one of their songs? Overkill, yes. Fucking love that song. Scott, you should do a cover. I know it's, it's been a, covered by a, a lot song. of people. Is that the Fade Away song? Yep. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. Definitely their best one, right? I'm almost surprised you didn't do that at some point during your pandemic cover days. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, if somebody had asked for that instead of... Gabe, where were you at the time? You were supposed uh, to ask for it. I hear about the stuff the same time everybody else does. He <laughs> okay. wants to do. Yeah. So... Gabe, you are in South Carolina right now. Yes, I am. We're getting a lot of rain over here. It's nothing like what you're happening back home, but uh, excuse me, you're getting a lot of what? A lot of rain. Rain. Oh, I remember <laughs> rain. Rain. <laughs> rain. Oh, rain. That was something else. Are, are you getting it up in Madison, Ben? Ben. No, is I was going to say that's the weird thing about today's uh, a winter vortex polar express nightmare is that it. It's south of Madison. Like it hit, I know it hit Chicago hard, but we missed it entirely. I mean, it's zero degrees here. So I'm not saying we have it good, but we don't have the snow today. Right, right. Super. I talked to my dad today and he's like, no, there's no snow. It's super sunny and it's cold as fuck. 
Yeah. It's not that cold here. So I, I think I'd rather have the snow, especially since you're not going to have anything to do. Right. So Gabe, I, um, I, I did, I did my do- time in Brooklyn at Park Slope Copy Center. I worked there for 10 years. I was a delivery driver. Uh, and then of course, you know that was- one, Gabe, do you know that one in Park Slope? I've never yeah. been to either anywhere near that. I don't know what that is. Where was your copy center days? Uh, I worked in a place called Jobs Printing and Mailing in Waukegan for 25 years. And uh, I used to bring in some of my friends to help, you know, put together my zine and stuff like that. But it's a family business and I was there for a long time. I still work in printing, but they're they're out of business now. Right. But you would go in at night uh, between the years of 1989 and 1992 to work on your, your zine, Good and Plenty, right? Not only I, not only me, but my brothers, my my friends, even you came in a few times. Yes, yes, I did come in. Collate some of those zines back then, playing Seven Seconds and Iron Maiden in between. Well, I mean, it's interesting because did you know they were going to do this when they made that book about and it and it collected all of the issues of your zine and then had all these really erudite articles about the typesetting you used. No, I I I thought they were just going to compile the book and make it one compilation yeah like about a year ago they put out a book uh drawdown put out a book uh called hardcore fanzine and it's all of gabe's zines between 89 and 92 holy shit so mike mcpadden he started out in the zine world he had this zine out of new york called happy land and it wasn't really a music zine although music was definitely covered but it, it was more like the ins and outs of Times square <laughs> all of the sleazy uh, porno theaters and and regular theaters that he had frequented. In fact, he 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 had a pen name of Selwyn Harris, and the, that those were the two the names of the last two sort of original grindhouse porno theaters, uh, the Selwyn and the Harris. In fact, if you watch that that whatever that fucking HBO show about uh, forty seconds about prostitutes oh. in the seventies. Oh yeah, Deuce uh, the Deuce. The Deuce. If you watch The Deuce, uh, part of the Which main I credits are, are this is the Selwyn movie theater. So anyway, it, it could have been uh, better, but it was. I, I'm a big. I was a big fan of it. Yeah. So yeah. So Gabe's in. That's where Gabe started. So so, I mean, uh, let's get to a podcast. Why a podcast? I mean, I guess in a way we're all. We're all lifers here uh, in our own way. And I, I, I guess we should establish what what is a lifer. I mean, you can look at it as, as somebody who just hasn't given up, has figured out a way to keep pursuing a dream, or, or it's a, you know, uh, can't stop rolling the dice, or it's a loser, maybe, someone who doesn't know when to bow out gracefully. Uh, and... Um, I think I sort of fit into both of those categories, but so, so the, why a podcast? Everybody has a podcast, right? So it's been almost a year since local H was pulled from the road and kind of doing what we do to earn a living. You know, we had a new record coming out that was coming out last April and we were on the road with a uh, soul asylum talk about a lifer. Um, and then all this stuff happened with COVID. And so we were pulled off the road with like a few dates left and we drove across country and it was like, we got home and it was like, what do we do now? So during that entire time, we figured out all these ways to adapt and carry on. And, and also with a new record, there was all these things about how do we get the word out about that record? So these are these are lifers problems as well about adapting and carrying on and and all that stuff. Um, and one of the things that we did was we started doing these live streams, which you were talking about earlier, Ben, on on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and Twitter and, and all that kind of stuff. And our manager, Eddie, was like, uh, you should do a podcast. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. He was like, it should be a podcast called Lifers. And you talk to other lifers in the world of music or film or food or people or people who run clubs. And I guess that's what we're going to do. Um, I didn't really give it too much thought. And then Ben reached out to me and he was like, 
I, I want to do this, keep this thing going because his uh, co-host Mike died and it, all these movies in the seventies. And he knows I like movies. And so once we did a couple of episodes of that, I think I started to realize that this is something that we could do. Um, and certainly Ben knows how to put this kind of thing together. So, oh yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm an, I'm an amazing put it together of podcasts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, well, it's something that I did, that I learned how to do this past year just because I was like, Oh shit. I, it was actually a sort of born out of a similar thing. My, my day job, which is really not a day job. It's really my, that's my life or thing is, right. is movies at this point, although music still uh, as well. Uh, but, but I work basically at a, at a movie theater, like a, a more or less, you know, it's a film program that shows movies in a, in an actual theater all year round. And then when we realized we couldn't do that anymore, we tried to figure out what can we do? Uh, uh, and we, uh, figured out a way to show movies online to our audience. Uh, we pay for, uh, licensing fees, uh, from movies. And then we just pass the pass free views onto the people who are on our email list and request access to movies. But then the other part of it was like, well, we normally bring people onto campus filmmakers to be, to do Q and A's after their films or film historians to talk about older movies that we're showing. Um, and so we thought let's actually, we had just started, uh, the idea of doing a podcast, but we were sort of half-assing it. And then all, then the pandemic came along like, oh, wait, we, it's a good thing we started to set this up because now we're going to do this every week instead of instead of what we normally do. So yeah, it was sort of born out of necessity. You um, know, like the film center here in Chicago, is, I, I just got an email from them today and they're going to start doing a series of John Sayles movies. Mm -hmm. And he's going to be there talking about them. And he's picking out six movies to talk. I mean, talk about a lifer. John yeah. Sales, but uh, he's going to pick out six of his movies and he's going to talk about them. Um, are you doing anything like that? Are you talking to John Sales? <laughs> we we're, we're talking to plenty of. But we just talked to that dude Rodney Asher. You know him? You ever seen that no. movie Room Two Thirty Seven, the documentary about yes. The Shining? Yeah, That's he's got a new documentary coming out, right? Yeah. And, and what's that one about? Well, that one's about people who think we're living in a simulation, like The Matrix. Right. It's called right. Glitch in the Matrix, and we showed it at Cinematech last week. If you had been on our mailing list, Scott, you could have watched that movie already. <laughs> Why don't you put me on your mailing list? I'll put you on the mailing list. I, you know what? I feel that. like you are. Uh, I feel like I am on your mailing list. <laughs> You're on my personal mailing yeah, list. Yeah, because since we started doing the 70 movies <laughs> in the 70s, like yeah. every week you've got like at least 10 movies for me that I've, that I've never heard of. So, I mean, you're, I know you're a guru over there, but you're kind of my 70s guru. Um well, Personal. happy to be. Yeah. Well, well, but um, I watched that Marjo Gortner documentary, by the way, and it was great. It was mind blowing. Yeah, it really is. That guy is something else, Marjo. Something else. Something else. He led the uh, life. Yeah. But hey, I want to ask you something about the concept of lifers, because to me, uh, part of it is this thing where you. Uh, start down this path and you achieve some certain level of success and then you sort of like level out and then maybe even, you know, mm, yeah. I'm just talking about commercially, not artistically. Right, right. Of course. You sort of go down below a certain level that you started out at and then, but you don't give up and you're like, well, I may never get back to that level, but I'm in this for life now. This is my thing. This is my art. This is my work. I'm going to make this work because I don't know what else to do at this point, And I don't want to do anything else. Right. Am I right? right. Is that part it, of it? Th th there is that. And, and there's, there's a sense of, I mean, uh, a lot of the people that we have on the record on the lifers record is, is sort of people like that who have sort of had this time where, you know, magazines were doing articles on them and they were maybe on MTV or, or whatever, but you never got the feeling that that's why they were, in it. And once that kind of thing went away and they were allowed to, to uh, keep doing things on their own terms and, you know, without that semi harsh light or whatever, uh, nothing really changed. And, and th those are the kind of people that fascinate me because like, even if you got a huge band um, like, like Metallica or like you, you read that uh, Motley Crue book, and there is a record in both of those bands where it's as big as they're going to get. Right. And then, and then, you know, while it's 
not quite the precipitous drop that uh, maybe I took, but you know, there is a drop and then they sort of like figure out who are we now? You know, it, it takes them a couple of records to sort of go, all right, we don't want to chase that anymore. You know, I mean, it, it happens to everybody. Um, I mean, even you too, isn't the center of the, the universe like they used to be. So it's just like everything it happens on different levels. And so, yeah, you know, well, what's that saying about uh, your character is uh, what happens when you fail, you know, that, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's what's what we're going to try to do and talk to people like that and people that, that, you know, I and people in the band looked up to and, and we were going to, this is going to be the first episode and we were going to talk to Juliana Hatfield. Um, and I th- think I see Gabe has only everything back there by it's local agent Juliana Hatfield. I got that. Uh, it's a tab book, you know, with all the musical tabs from that record. That's right. You took that from me one day and had it autographed from her or by her to me. Well, I had to take it from you because I had to learn all those songs because I was playing. Did I give it a, to you to learn or you just took it? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, it's really funny because I was looking for that book the other day. I was like, I want to remember how to play some of those songs because I was just listening to that record a couple of weeks ago. And and that's what happened. You had that book. So I learned everything from that I could. And I showed up and she ended up playing a very uh, only everything centric set because because of that book. Yeah. Where are you taking it from me? But anyway, you, you got it autographed by her. And, and I'm a huge fan, by the way. But Yes. I, I, was, I need to hear this whole story about when you played with Juliana and what that occasion was, but I'm assuming we should save that for when Juliana's here. I think we should. So yeah. there was talk about Juliana being on the first episode, but Ben, being the good producer that he is, thought that we should try to sort of get our bearings first. And then so the next episode will be with Juliana and she will come. She's... She's all set and ready, and uh, Gabe, you should have that book out, and, and and we'll get into that. Can I make a confession that I think will be helpful for yes. clarity at this point, which is that uh, I've been listening to Lifers since it came out, but I'm the kind of fucking low-life douchebag 2020 local age and every other kind of music fan where I'm just listening to it on my stupid music streaming services. So... I want to say I have I don't have the CD. I didn't get the vinyl yet, but I'm I'm kind of drooling over what I'm seeing behind <laughs> Gabe there. Uh, so I don't I don't know who's on this fucking album, um, and I didn't even realize that Juliana was on the album until you shared something with me recently, and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. So who are the other lifers on Lifers? So uh, Steve Albini is on it, and he does uh, a lot of recording out of. Eight out of the 11 songs are partially recorded by Albini. Um, John Haggerty from Naked Ray Gun and Mm -hmm. Peck Boy is on it. Uh, It was mixed by Jay Robbins from Jobbox. Um, Juliana Juliana is on it. Gabe is on it. Uh, Our buddy Blake from Fig Dish is on it. John McCauley from Deer Tick is on it. so yeah, like once Juliana was on the record, it became this idea is like, let's get more friends to be on it. But they had to be people that, you know, uh, had been around for a while or were either friends of ours or, you know, in the case of John, it, uh, you know, he's certainly younger than us, but, but, you know, I, I, I can already tell that he's not going anywhere. Yeah. Um, sometimes you bump into an 18 year old and you're like, oh, he's a lifer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, uh, what else? And then Andy Gerber at Million Yen. Uh, oh, yeah. He uh, is all over the record recording stuff. Um, he didn't mix this one, but I've known Andy probably longer than anybody in the Chicago scene. Um, and he was, we'll get him on here too. We'll talk to him about it. I, I was actually in the studio with him all weekend, which is why I sound a little hoarse. Um, I don't really want to say what we were doing, but we we're recording something and, and uh, it was fun. You know, at one point I was like, I'm actually having a really good time. 
And Andy's like, yeah, see, it's supposed to be fun. And that is a really good impersonation of Andy Gerber, by the way. Um, so how did you and Gabe first m- meet, hook up? Gabe? Uh, actually, I was, I was basically good friends with uh, the old bass player from Local H, Matt Garcia. He was the, the connection that got me, you know, hanging out with, with, you know, with Scott. Right. So this was in the very early days when there was an, actually a three piece. Right. 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 We, we all went to high school together. And, uh, and after that, Gabe was hanging around shows, practices. We were actually in uh, an issue of Good and Plenty. Right. I think I was basically the last one left hanging out and they needed somebody to push their cases and help them load in. And I was the last one. Is it like that Matt Garcia got a divorce from local H and that, and the local H inherited you like you were, you went with that side of the breakup or are you still friends Mm -hmm. with Matt? I'm still friends with Matt. Oh, okay. Most of us still talk to him, but uh, he kind of moved out of the area and I, I, I stayed in Zion and, and, you know, we were putting on local shows and uh, you know, not flyers and uh, everything that went on print was going through our print shop. So, uh, you know, I just, it just came hand in hand. And, and I was, I was a fan of, of the music. So I, you know, I liked it, but some of the shows I couldn't even get into because I wasn't old enough. They were 21 and over shows. So I yeah. would go there and, and help them load and I'd have to wait outside or, or whatever, you know, or, or shake. Yeah. See, I don't remember that. I don't remember you not being old enough. Yes, there was the the show at NIU. I, I don't even know if I was eighteen in some of those shows. Come on, you, know, you were eight. I was young. I, but the band didn't start until nineteen ninety. You were out of high school by then. You were definitely over eighteen. I graduated when I was seventeen. All right. See, see, here's something that Gabe likes to do all the time. He, he <laughs> constantly likes to say how much younger he is than me, but he's only a year younger than me. It's I'm not even fifty. I, I know, but you will be <laughs> next year. Yes, I will. Well, uh, the first time me and Gabe actually hung out away from Matt or away from anybody else, because we were going to shows and he was coming to our shows. And we were going to, uh, uh, what was it, the Unicorn? Was that Gus's place? Yeah, Unicorn in Milwaukee. Yeah, in Milwaukee, we were going to shows like that. And so we were hanging out one night and, and Gabe's like, yeah, you know, want to come over to my place and listen to some records? And that was, and we, and we did that. And I think, we ended up listening to rumors by Fleetwood Mac all night. Uh, so it wasn't like a bunch of hardcore records we were listening to. It was, it was rumors, which freaked me out because I had that record growing up and I didn't have the cover. So I, I didn't realize lyrics came with it and your record had the cover. So it came with lyrics. And so I finally learned what the lyrics to like dreams were, you know, it, it freaked me out. Did it uh, did it deepen your appreciation of rumors, or did it make did it spoil the whole thing for you? No, it, they're pretty good lyrics. It did not spoil it for me because you know that will happen, and then and then you can't unhear it. But right, but that did not happen with that record. But so, so Gabe, I don't get this whole. I mean, I guess I do because I I guess I'm sort of the same way. But did you find? Do you find that you were sort of a uh, singular in this, in that you were this central figure in this sort of hardcore zine world, but you were also a total uh, men at work and Fleetwood Mac fan. Oh, I was a, uh, I was a metalhead with with hair down the halfway down my ass. So, and and I was actually straight edge at the time, and I still am. But uh, so I, I'm going to straight edge shows with with hair down to my butt, and so I, I definitely didn't fit into anything. You know, the stereotype of a of a you know, metalhead just didn't uh, just didn't fit anything that I was going to. So, you know, I'm the long-haired guy going to the shows that that everybody thinks is is a stoner, but I wasn't. So nothing really. You know, I just I kind of didn't fit anything. Well, that's it. That makes perfect sense that you wound up hanging out and being part of local H because there's a band that also is like this singular kind of like straddles all these different worlds, but doesn't really fit into any specific genre. Yeah, but scene. I mean, we were both like in high school, you know, I was listening to all these metal bands and stoner rock bands, but I was never a stoner. I had long hair and everybody was like, okay, that guy's a stoner. And it wasn't until 
a few years later that that would have been true. Um, but, but, but Gabe, you're still flying the flag. Not the stoner flag. No, he's the, straight the edge, anti, man. What's the matter with you? He's flag. still straight edge. Yes. Yeah. He's still straight edge. But now you don't have hair down to your ass. It's even more straight edge. I, I lost it and I became <laughs> something that I was trying not to look like all my life. So, uh-huh. you know, Mother Nature or whatever you want to say. <laughs> She's cruel. Um, but yeah, so then Gabe just became, he would all, he went from being at shows to being at re- rehearsals all the time. And, you know, we'd always bounce stuff off of Gabe. And, uh, and then at a certain point it was like, you're not doing anything. Why don't you play the tambourine or, uh, play the kazoo? It was a big, was a big, uh, it was a big day for us when, once you picked up a kazoo. Was singing background was was I guess what you first started doing? Yeah, and actually, I was watching a video of of, of pavement the other day. Yep, some early pavement stuff, and there was this guy back there who was standing in the background and just screamed these lines over and over again. And I think you actually got so got such of a kick out of that. I'm gonna have Gabe do that because yeah, that, that's that's not cool, but it's 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 different. Well, we went to see pavement at Loungejacks. And Bob Nastanovich was doing that. And mm-hmm. I remember Gabe and I were in the front row and we just kept looking at each other like, what is this? And we kept laughing. Right. And and it was, I was like, you know, you can be our Bob. Uh, <laughs> you know, years later, people likened him to Bez. It was like, oh, Gabe is your Bez from Happy Mondays. Um, uh-huh. But it was definitely pavement. Uh, man, we ripped a lot of stuff off from pavement. <laughs> Yeah, but so did Lincoln Park then, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So then, Gabe, you you, you eventually uh, went on tour with us, and then you kind of got pushed into being a tour manager somewhere around Stone Temple Pilots or something like that? Yeah, it was basically around some, you know, right before that tour for Stone Temple Pilots, you know, uh, I had to quit my job and go on the road with you guys, and uh, that was a pretty big step, but... Uh, you know, after the Snowtail Pilots tour, I pretty much did tour managing duties full time for the band. Right, but you had quit your had you quit your job before Stone yeah, Temple Pilots? I quit my job uh, in '95 when when the first record came out. Wow! You said, "Hey, I want you. I want you to come with us. You got you got to come with us on the journey. Whatever whatever happens, happens. But you got to come with us. You can't make us. You know, you can't let us do this on our own." Yeah. No, I, I I needed you there <laughs> in more ways than one. But did you uh, did you offer Gabe like a weekly salary, or did you just get a cut of whatever it was you were pulling in from merch? Were you on salary? I was on salary. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't looking to get a cut of the band. I just you know I, I needed to pay the, my bills, but I wasn't doing it for the money. I was just I sure I to see the country and and right. enjoy the stuff that was going on. Yeah, and it, we're we're all just together learning how to do this together out there you know but but we're also out with uh corrosion and conformity and people were just kind of like what the fuck is going on this guy they don't have a bass player this dude keeps running out and you know playing kazoo uh, i don't understand what's happening and uh <laughs> that was a trial by fire uh, touring with those guys and to that audience doing this sort of you know quasi indie noise alternative thing that we were doing and that was you that was the tour you were touring the first album at that point or this was yeah. later okay that was the first record yeah we also did some shows with monster magnet and corrosion conformity so oh definitely a different crowd monster magnet was on that tour well uh, they did a, we did a few shows with both of them i remember doing shows with monster magnet when they put out power trip and we were out with uh pack up the cats but I don't really remember Monster Magnet on the Corrosion tour. I thought I thought there was a couple shows, maybe not on the tour, but maybe around that time. I, I swear, I swear, we did some with the all three of us. Could have been right, and, and I just never met them because I was a big fan of Spine of God, so I, I, I certainly would have angled to try to meet them. But I don't really remember that. So uh, when I got roped into being a road manager, tour manager, 
I don't know. I don't remember if they call me tour manager or road manager. I don't even know what the difference is. I don't actually know what either one of those positions really means. But what it turned out in my case was I was supposed to drive the van whenever possible. Like unless somebody in the band really wanted to. Like anytime they didn't want to was I was supposed to do it. So I was usually the one driving like after a show if we had like a couple hundred miles before our hotel or wherever the fuck we were going to stay. And then... um, change guitar strings whenever possible, set up the drum kit whenever possible, uh, tear down all that stuff. Uh, you know, I was like, I was like everything that wasn't an actual musician, uh, get the money from the club owner at the end of the night and, um, run out of the van and make the calls from pay phones to the club saying we're late. We don't know where we are. All that kind of stuff. Was that the kind of stuff that, that your definition of tour manager was Gabe and, and, what if any of that stuff did you already kind of know how to do and what if any of that stuff was it a trial by fire i think the whole thing was trial by fire yeah this this was before cell phones right right i remember the day where i got a beeper (laughs) yeah (laughs) you want to tell that story scott do you remember that no you tell that story oh our our manager at the time he gave me a beeper he says gabe you got to keep this with you at all times and when we need to get a hold of you you got to call us back didn't he say he had to keep that bitch on? He said, yes, he said, keep that bitch on. <laughs> it was the 90s. <laughs> so, uh, and then you pull over, find a payphone, and 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 make your calls. And that was a lot different back then. Yeah, you had the maps, like trying to get in and out of uh, Washington, D.C. was a goddamn nightmare. Right. Um. But did Scott make you tune guitars and did you have to help set up the drums and all that shit? Uh, I became basically Joe's tech, the drummer, mm-hmm. Joe Daniels. He, uh, right. I, somehow I fell into the duties of setting up and breaking down the drum set. Scott did his own stuff. I didn't know how to tune a guitar, so he basically just did his own stuff and I did Joe's stuff back yeah. in the day, right? Yeah. Yeah. We all loaded in. We all loaded out as much as we could, get help at the clubs that would help us. But it was a, it was a three-man gang you know, we also tried to learn everything we could from book your own fucking life. And I I don't know how helpful that was for me. I mean, did you book your own fucking life was this book that, uh, maximum rock and roll put out. I remember reading that and, and, and but I also don't remember what, um, what lessons I gleaned from it. (laughs) I didn't have time to read the book. I had to buy a computer, learn how to use it and, just get on the road because there was no time to learn anything. Just, we went on the road. I learned how to use a computer within a couple of weeks. We were on the road. Yeah. What was the thing about being on the road that first time that was the most surprising? Like what, what was the thing that you were like, Oh, I had no idea it was going to be like this. Okay. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know. I mean, every, everything was so new, you know, we were, you know, we were just growing as, as people. And as, as men, young men, but the band was growing, you know, and it didn't, you know, it, it was such a short time looking back at it, it seemed like it took forever. Right. It was, it was like a year we were playing to four people in Orlando and a year later, you know, we're selling out clubs on the East coast, you know? So I'd say we, because I, I, I say it all the time when we talk about local H we, but you know, I was just part of the group. Part of the you, were, you were part of the group. You were, I mean, when you finally uh, said, um, I mean, I, you know, I wanted you to record on the records and that didn't happen for whatever reason. But as far as I'm concerned, you were part of the group. Like you weren't somebody that that we were just paying a salary to, you know. And and I remember when you finally, like, I don't know what year this was, like 2002 or something. And you like, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't be on the road. It's it's too much for me. I, I, I want to be home. And uh I got to go back to the job and everything like that was the only time where I thought, I don't think I can do this anymore. I was like, without Gabe, local H isn't really local H anymore. You know, like no, nobody has a Gabe except for pavement and, and happy Mondays. <laughs> I remember talking to our manager and I was like, I, I don't think I, what's going to happen without Gabe? And he's like, it's going to be fine relax. But that was the time where I was like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's time to hang this up and call it something else. So you were very important. 
is 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 what I'm trying to say. When you when you guys got off the road after that first tour, I guess, or first year of touring, like were you were you had you had you both been bitten by the bug then and were like, I can't wait to get back on the road and do this all next year? Or was it like, oh God, I'm exhausted, and then you had to sort of be sort of psych yourself back into doing it again? Gabe. Okay. <laughs> uh the thing Gabe, about you, Gabe, you, you you don't realize it, but you are our lifers for the first time. <laughs> you're, so. yeah. you're our lifer. I guess, I guess I'm starting to realize. Queen for a day. This is your life, dude. <laughs> uh, the thing about back then was the, the the guys, Joe and Scott, they would they would fly to Charlotte or Atlanta or whatever and record the record and come back, you know, a couple weeks later, three, four weeks, whatever it was, and they'd have a cassette of the recordings that were unmixed. And I would hear them and I'd be like, holy cow, these, these things are these things are really good and these are not even mixed yet. So I couldn't wait to get back in the road. And, you know, after the first record, they, they went right back in to record a second and it was like waiting forever. You know, it, it took forever for those guys to come back. Cause I'm sitting going to work every day and here they are recording a record. I'm like, what the hell am I going to do? You know? <laughs> well, remember we kind of yanked off that uh, off tour for that first record. Like I remember, I think we were on tour with tripping Daisy and I got a, a it was, I think they probably beeped you and like, yeah, Scott, you, you gotta, you gotta call, call in. I called in and they're like, yeah, the record's done. It's over. They're not gonna, they're not gonna support it anymore. You know, you're not getting another single out of this. And I was like, yeah, but the big single is coming up and, and they're like, no, it's over. It's time for you to make a new record. And I freaked out because, you know, we weren't done. You know, we thought that the record still had more life in it. And we thought they were going to push it more. And I also didn't have any songs for a new record. It was kind of, it was, uh, it was I, so I, I wasn't ready to come home from that first tour. I don't know if you were just completely done, Gabe, but, but for me, I was like, I'm not ready to come home. No, I, I didn't know what to do when I got home. I, I called my work and said, Hey, I, I need to get some hours. Can you put me back on for a couple of weeks till whatever? And my boss said, sure, whatever you want just let us know when you want to work. And which which was an ideal situation for you. I mean, holy shit. Right. They basically, I had free reign. I, I could, you know, come back whenever I wanted and, and work. <clears throat> and then when the guys were ready to go back in the road, they, they would say, let's go. So I, I kind of had an open invitation to come back, but, you know, waiting every night, you know, waiting for those guys to come back. I'm like, you know, I just, I just spent six months, you know, touring the country and now I got to go back to work. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't something I was looking forward to, but, you know, the anticipation of, going back in the road was, was pretty big. Well, I still had my job at Subway, so. <laughs> you didn't quit right away. No, I did not. I did not quit right away. I, uh, I was, I was very thrifty. I was certain that, uh, if I didn't keep making money, I'd, you know, spend, I mean, it's not like we made a, a bunch of money on our advance anyway. So it was, it was a good idea. I had to keep working, you know, Hey Gabe, do you remember like the the first local eight show that you were there for on the road when things like started picking up? Like the first, do you remember like the first best amazing local H live show? Like where there was like a big crowd and they were into it. And like, do you remember like that switch, like from playing for four people to suddenly like having a night where you're like, holy shit, I think this is, I think this is going to work. I don't think it happened like that. I think it was just gradually because we, on the second record, we toured forever. We toured from February to, you know, August the next year, you know, we, we toured forever. Right. And it just seemed like the next tour was bigger than the next. And then, you know, finishing a tour in Chicago, we, we finish up at a bigger club every time we, we ended up playing the Metro in uh, March of uh, 96, I think. For two nights. For two nights sold out. Maybe 97. I can't remember. 97 yeah i think it was 97 so but, maybe, uh, go ahead maybe that was the show the the failure the two failure sold out shows at the metro maybe i think it was sooner i think it was uh do you remember that show at the axis club in boston and that was okay yeah yeah that show was fucking off the rails and that was the first show i was like Ooh, maybe something is happening. I mean, I don't even think it, we, I don't even know if we were playing with anybody. I think it was just us. It was like kind of a 
radio show, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. And that wasn't the one with Sugar Ray, was it? Oh, my God. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, it, that was because it wasn't on our, on our home turf. That kind of hit a, hit a nerve with us. I remember that. Right. Like it was like the first place we were going to blow up was Boston. And, and that kind of kind of made sense in some ways, but um, just because of the stuff that we like from Boston. Uh, um, but, but yeah, that was, that was surprising. And what was it, it, Scott? Like you felt like a different energy coming from the crowd. Yeah. And people were into it and people knew the songs and people were going crazy. Like that was, that's one of those shows that, you know, you hope for every night. And, and that, and that was the first time that we'd played one like that on tour. But I remember before, like we put out, before we got signed to a major label, there was that show at the VFW hall in Gurney. And that, that show was the one that like, like I wanted every show to be like that since that show people were, remember it was on the second story and people were jumping out of the windows. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was insane. And I was like, this is what I wanted every night to be. Yeah. That, I think that show in Boston, I, I remember getting this huge flashlight. We used to carry these big flashlights like this big. Yeah. And before the show, you know, I'd be the guy, the tour manager, with that big old flashlight spot, shot in this, you know, shooting the spotlight on the guys as, so they could walk out. And, <laughs> And I, that's the first time I didn't feel stupid doing that because it was actually packed. It was dark. There was a lot of people there and you actually need the flashlight to get through. And uh, it, ma- it, it made sense at that point. I'm like, okay, you know, it's going to be all right. Where did you get the idea to get a flashlight from? I don't know. I mean, everybody, all the tools that, that the tour managers had back then, you had that big old flashlight, you had the, the lanyard with all your passes around your neck. Mm-hmm. So you were just watching, you were just observing tour managers and going, ah, tools of the trade. I, I need that. That's where I went wrong. I never had a flashlight and my tour manager stint. Now I know. 18 inches long. And it was probably. (laughs) Never had an 18 inch long. (laughs) Well, Um, it was, it was also good for other things. It wasn't just a flashlight. It was also like a billy club. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it was for protection. And Gabe, were you doing the merch table at those shows too? Did you have merch at that time? We had we had merch, and I was I was setting up and tearing down and and, and counting in and counting out. I don't think I was selling merch at that I, shows because I had more to do. Not the first record. I mean, I was selling merch at the first record. Right, you were selling merch at the first during the first record. We only had one. Hey, shirt. Gabe had better shit to do. Of course, you were <laughs> you were selling the merch, Scott. Well, I would sell merch, and and all we had was that shirt called uh 20 nothing and it was based on the logo of 30 something <laughs> and it was not a big seller mm. uh, so you had like in the 30 something letters on the side of your sleeve local h and then there'd be 30 something on the front and i don't think we got like real shirts until the second record and it was i think at that show where those the local h with the the red logo came and said fuck you on the back yeah i remember that that actually was in boston yep the company that did it was in boston and you were not happy that the way they came out i was livid i was like <laughs> wait we're gonna sell a shirt with fuck you on the back i was like this who, who are we well you know this is terrible and it was a huge fight it's definitely not my idea um but you know I guess that's in our history. That's been our biggest selling shirt, right? Uh, wait, whose idea was it? That what do you mean you had? It? Weren't you? Didn't you have creative say so over the fucking shirt? Like, were there other options that you were presenting? And they're like, no, no, this is the way to go. Yeah, there was. Who a, was there, the they? You, you you had a manager back then. Well, yeah, we had um, we had management, um, and uh, yeah. it was actually a, a. I think it was actually a Joe idea, and so. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't know how it happened or, or if it was just like she said. Our manager at the time was like, well, how about fuck you on the back? He was like, yeah, okay, that sounds good. Because, I mean, <laughs> we like shirts with fuck on them. Yeah. But, like, if you would ask me, I would have said, all right, put you high five a motherfucker on the back. Sure. I, just, I wouldn't have had a shirt that just said fuck you. 
And so I was like, why is this fuck you? What did you do? Why did you do this? And then he got heated about it and, and upset. And then we got into this big fight just before we were about to go on and, and play this show. I think that that show wasn't the one that was big. I think that when those shirts came and we got into the big fight was when uh, we were on the three by five tour, right? Mm, that's, that's a good question. All right. Well, I, I think it was because uh, I think that it just made everybody on that tour feel weird uh, for a while. Um, the fight that you guys had over the shirts. Right. But the three by five tour was, uh, that was, that was one of the more interesting early tours. So it was, it was three bands and the idea, and it was this MTV type of idea. It was like, the idea was that it would be three bands for five bucks and it would be three new bands and people, and the idea was that people would pay five bucks for three bands, which is bullshit because people won't pay anything for, for three bands, you know, right. if they don't know the bands, you can't pay them to come see the bands. So here we were and, you know, it had support from MTV. They were doing bits on it and they're talking about it and where it was going to be. And it was all set up. We were out with, uh, who was it? it was Stanford prison experiment and it was limb lifter. Right. And it, did not go well. And so like each night it was so poorly attended that the bands would start betting on how many people would show up. You know, if people like, I bet eight people are going to show up and, you know, here we are wasting all this money and all this major, all the bands are on major labels, all this major label money on this bullshit tour that was sponsored by MTV. And I love, I love that tour. I, I thought that was a lot of fun. That was one of the best tours we'd ever been on even though it was fucking embarrassing most nights it was still still because you had fun with those other bands yeah yes and it was also this kind of thing that we were all going through the same horrible uh you know embarrassment at the same time and it was a co-headlining thing where the rotator the, the, the different bands would headline each night so you really didn't want to go on last because the fewest amount of people would see you if you went on last. Right. So <laughs> yeah. just rotate. Right. <laughs> right. You really wanted to be in the middle. Well, remember that tour we, d- we did with orange nine millimeter where, where, and, and, and I've never done this again because that is with, with the three by five tour rotating, that makes sense. But, but with uh, orange nine millimeter where we went out and it was a co-headlining tour and we would switch off each night. And the idea was that, um, if, if we were in a town where uh, you had more people in that town, you would be the headlining one. So we were in this town and neither of us had been there and it was their turn to headline. And at this point it become, you know, point of contention. It's like, well, you've got a headline motherfucker because no one wanted a headline. And so <laughs> we're in this town and they started playing us on the radio. So orange nine millimeter was like, well, you guys are getting put on the radio. Everyone's going to be here for you. Yeah. You should headline. We're like, no, no, it's your turn to headline. You have to headline. And so this went on and on and on all night. And no one knew who was going to headline and no one would budge. And so, and people were like, I've never seen anything like this. Like, you know, like no one wants to headline. And we're like, oh, yeah, right. And so at the end of the night, I think me and the bass player, uh, the bass player and I had come to an agreement that we would set both drums up at the same same time, set everybody's gear up at the same time. And then, you know, one band would play a song and the other band would play a song. And we would go back and forth. Wow. We, th- we thought this was the greatest idea ever. Like no one had ever done. Right. The drummers of both bands, our band and Orange Nine Miller, thought this was the worst idea of all time. They would <laughs> not do it. They refused to do it. And uh, so we ended up headlining uh, but yeah that was never again you know it, you've got to know who's going to headline otherwise it just you know and you can call it co-headlining if you want but somebody's got to go on last and that has to be uh, preordained right not preordained but predetermined predetermined thank well, you I, I once saw there was a uh, new order and echo and the bunnyman were doing one of these co-headlining tours and they right 
they didn't tell you in advance who was going to be headlining on any particular night. And I think they would just go back and forth, I think. Um, And I saw them in New York at this, uh, they used to call it the Dr. Pepper Music Festival. It was out on the West Side Pier in like the 40s, um, like right on the water. Uh, I saw a ton of shows like uh, every summer for like three or four years in a row. Um, And I was hoping that I was going to get to see the New Order headlining show, but it didn't work out in my favor. It was Echo was headlining. I don't know where you guys come out. Oh, so you were hoping New Order would end. I, I was, yeah, I was, I was the bigger New Order fan. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I think you're right. I, I sometimes I think Echo is better. Okay. There you go. Gabe, <laughs> Dr. Pepper, Dr. Pepper, and Mr. Pib. Uh, neither. Come on. Wow, we, you are straight edge. Oh, or no, you have a theory about Mr. Pib. Oh, let's hear that. I forgot it. You probably remember it better than I do. What, what was it? But what what did you say? Like Mr. Pibb is just a Dr. Pepper knockoff, which it is, but I don't think that was your theory. Didn't you have something clever to say about it? Or do I just always think something you say is clever and it never is on further examination? I the dumb things I say. I say stupid things like like Ringo used to say, and, and I forget them. <laughs> I'll say this. I think Dr. Pepper is better than Mr. Pibb, but what really got fucked up was uh, for a while at the place where I worked when I first moved to Madison, which was Rayovac Battery Company, they had a vending machine. Uh, and I guess in Wisconsin, I don't, I don't know. I don't even understand the difference between like w- when you can get Dr. Pepper and when you can get Mr. Pibb. But it was worse than that. It was a Mr. Pibb vending machine, but they weren't selling Mr. Pibb. They were selling Pibb Extra. Whoa. And I don't know what the difference between <laughs> Mr. Pib and Pib Extra is. And I tried to research it, and I don't think they're. I think they just changed the name at some point. I, that's right, because you can't find Mr. Pib anymore. It's always Pib Extra, and I've yeah. never even thought of that. Like, wait a minute, that's different. It's just been one of those things that I'm like, all right, it's Pib Extra, and I'm <laughs> never like really try to get in there. But did you grow up with Mr. Pib or Dr. Pepper or both? We were in between. We had both. So I was, I don't, I mean, I'm pretty sure it was almost exclusively Dr. Pepper growing up for me. And yeah, that. but what about Mountain Dew or Squirt? Mountain, total, totally Mountain Dew. I mean, but Squirt wasn't around when I was young, right? Squirt's a more recent. Squirt's like a Wisconsin thing, I think. Yeah. Right? I'll give you the thing. The reason I hate Squirt, uh, there's only one reason. Uh, oh, that is a good Squirt. When I finally started drinking, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't drink when I was a, in high school or a teenager. See, you're just like us. See, this is perfect. Yeah, but when I did, it was because my grandmother introduced me to these things called apricot sours. <laughs> she would, yeah, oh, we, we how many times did you throw up on those things? Oh, I love those fucking things. And then, but then I manned up, right? I be, I said, no, nah, I can't do the apricot sour anymore. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fucking guy man so i would be ordering whiskey sours whiskey which, sours which yeah. is, how many times did you throw up on those and i don't think i ever did because see, i only drinking them so they, they taste so good you drink too many of them and then you throw I, up it's true you could do that but i think i was also such a lightweight when it came to alcohol that one would get me where i wanted to go and i didn't you know i didn't need any more but they were delicious but when i moved to the midwest and I, and i they, embarrassingly like it's, that's probably 20 years or at least 10 years after I started drinking. So now I'm in my thirties and uh, I'm still drinking whiskey sours. But when I started ordering them in Wisconsin at bars, they would constantly serve me this thing that was not in any way, shape or form what I thought of as whiskey sour. It was whiskey with squirt from the fucking soda gun. That's a carbonated thing. That's not a whiskey sour. And the only place in the entire Midwest that I found when I first moved here, which is the late nineties was Chicago that made real whiskey sours that didn't right. even dream of using a fucking carbonated fucking grapefruit soda instead of like, you know, non-carbonated sour mix. Well, I've got to say I've, I've been uh, drinking a glass of whiskey and drinking a bottle of squirt. So See, you are I've, fucking Midwest. You yeah, might as well live I, in Wisconsin. Yeah, God damn it. I, might, I might as well. I'm thinking about it. 
Also, when I first got to Madison, I would go to bars and they wouldn't have red wine. They didn't even know, like I'd say, can I get a glass of red wine? And they'd be like, we don't, but they'd pull something out of the, out of the chiller. Like they'd had like, some like, right. like a uh, Chianti or something. Yeah. Like, <laughs> nice. you, you, what kind of wine you got? Red and white. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, it wasn't even, but they didn't even have red. <laughs> yeah. All right. We'll see. But do they have orange crush up there? Yeah. Oh yeah. Scott, orange, you know a story about the Orange Crush? Orange Crush. Well, let's not get into. It. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's try not to get into this stuff. Okay, right, let's just right. let's just not get anybody into any trouble. Uh, <laughs> you, you stumped me. So so wait so so wait, Gabe. At some point, you st- you you stopped going out on the road. Uh, basically, after 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 a crazy crazy tour in Australia for the second time, where we took Wes Kid out with us. And uh, you know our our crew, and we opened up for a band called Super Jesus in, in Australia. I think that was that tour. Yeah, it was nothing but a party every night. It was yeah. a party every night. And and Scott told me the story later on. He's like, our our main goal was to party as hard as we could every night. <laughs> it was because on the on the flight over there, I had read uh, the Sex Pistols book about their tour of America. And uh, I can't remember what the name of it. It's like eight days in America or, or something. So, so I, I, you know, sort of had a huddle up with everybody. I was like, look, nobody knows us in Australia. We can do whatever we want. Uh, let's do this. Let's do this until the wheels come off. Let's be the sex pistols over there. But you didn't tell Gabe. He's saying he only heard about this after the fact. <laughs> no, well, Gabe was, Gabe was, you know, he was the man. He was the boss. I mean, oh, okay. I don't think we, I don't think we told Joe either, but <laughs> I knew Wes knew our sound guy, uh, Paul knew. And was Mark with us over there too? Yeah. Mark, our guitar tech was there. So I, I think basically me, Wes and Paul knew, and that was the, the kind of thing that we were like. So, you know, every day was 24 hours, just everything we would get our hands on. And uh, everybody kind of quit after that, but you Gabe, you did not quit. You stuck around for a few more years. That was not that. That might have been internally your uh, your breaking <laughs> checked point. Checked out, yeah. Internally, it was, but I, I, you know, after after, you know, Joe stopped playing, and you know, Brian came in. I, I didn't want to, you know, call it quits myself and say, oh, "No, I'm not going to be part of this." I, I, I still wanted to be a part of what was happening. So, but in the back of my mind, that was the thing that said, you know what, I, I'm going to be 30 soon. And I'm, I'm, I think I want to settle down a little bit. I, I don't know if I can handle these guys. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. But yeah. I, I stuck around for a couple more years. Yeah, you did. You did. I can't remember what your last tour was. Can you? <clears throat> I, I actually don't remember because even when I did stop going out and working and getting paid to do it, I still went out and made, made road trips and stuff and, and, you know, came out to Atlanta make a road trip with a couple of the guys and just hung out and did my thing. And you still had a tambourine out there and I still went up and, you know, Oh yeah. No, we have a tambourine every show uh, just in case you show up. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's like I'm Jewish and at Passover, one of the first things you do is you set out a cup of wine for this Elijah. Right. right. May or may exactly. not show up at your, at your Seder. That's the- right. Exactly. So then, so then Gabe, you decided that like, you can't do this on the road anymore. And, uh, but y- y- your job offered you a bigger position and right. Yeah, it kind of, it kind of worked out at the perfect timing because my, my boss at my job said, I, w- I want to make you a manager and I want to pay you, you know, X amount of dollars. And that was what basically what I was getting paid with, with those guys. And I said, you know what? I, I think I have to, I think I have to bow down or bow out here and, you know, still find a way to, to be connected with the band. And right. at that point, that's when I, that's when I started GMP records. Right. And that, uh, that's when you decided you wanted to do the merch and take, yeah. take care of all that. I, I, I proposed taking over the merchandise and, and the online web store for the guys and have been doing that ever since. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, it, and I can't tell you how many times we've had somebody like, Oh, you should go to somebody else for your merch needs, go to some big merch company. And we never did. And uh, I always, 
refused to do that. And I think that was one of the, the best moves I ever made. I mean, we'd be fucked this year if it wasn't for uh, GNP and Gabe and everything like that. Well, it's, it's basically me saying, Hey, you guys can't make, you know, you can't sell anything on the road. You're going to, everything you're going to sell is going to come through, through, through GMP. So let's, let's do this. Let's go, let's go full steam ahead here. And I'd be calling you or texting you every other week saying, how about this? How about that for a new item? And you're like, stop with the text. <laughs> <laughs> enough already. But you know, we had enough good ideas to keep, to keep things afloat this last year. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I mean, we also had enough people that were, were willing to uh, buy things. And I don't know if people were buying those things because they were like, oh, I need that. Or if they were like, local H needs this. You know, I, I was starting to realize that some of these people buying stuff aren't necessarily buying it because they want it. They're buying it because, am I wrong about that? It's, 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 it's crazy. It's kind of like an addiction for some of these people, to, to tell you the truth. Yeah. They got to have the newest thing, but they also want to support. They don't, they want to support you and Ryan right now they, because they know you can't go on the road, you know, but you had local right. H and you I, had and local I, H masks, right? So people do need that. <laughs> we did, but um, they're, they're not, they're not a uh, CDC approved. Right. <laughs> so, so what we, we decided to do was what were those things gave that, that you wanted to get? Bandanas. Or are you talking uh, about the gators? The gators. The gators. Yeah. So Gabe's thing was like, he's like, look, this, um, this COVID thing, it's going to go away one of these days. And if we get these masks, people won't be able to use them anymore. So if we get these gators, people can use them when they go skiing and they can do all yeah. this stuff. Cause he was like this COVID it's going to be gone in a couple <laughs> of months. So Gabe's not always right about everything. <laughs> I wasn't right. It, it, it went over better than the Gabe shirt. <laughs> what the Gabe shirt? What Gabe shirt? Yes. They and, and and Gabe, we trust shirt. No, the God's gift of rock shirt. Oh well, that's the best shirt we've ever, <laughs> ever, ever made. That's the, 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 the picture from our my senior portrait where I had hair halfway down my ass. Uh, Scott said we got to make that a shirt. You know, this was like 1997. We're on tour with Stone Table Pilots, playing Madison Square Garden, and in the corner of the side of the merchandise booth is a picture of my face on a shirt. Yeah. The, the running joke was, how many Gabe shirts did you sell tonight, Gabe? Right. <laughs> right. Uh, and we might have sold three or four. <laughs> it, it was a grower. I mean, eventually, it, eventually it found its audience, but uh, opening up for Stone Temple Pilots, that was not the audience. They were more interested in the fuck you shirts. Yeah. Right. When, when we could sell them. Yeah, that's right. We played, we played a bunch of venues that were, uh, um, union controlled and they would not like it's like around new york they would not let us sell the fuck you shirts and we're like right. in new york you don't want us to sell fuck you shirts it's like you guys invented fuck you right you're, you're infringing on our copyright is what the problem right. is <laughs> right they're like what first of all they're like local h hmm, <laughs> sounds like a union to me yeah yes. can't have any more unions than the local one here right anyway, what's on the back of that shirt fuck, no 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 kids Move along, fellas. Yeah, but but just circling back to the to the merch from 2020, I, you know, I've been doing this with the guys since 99, and 2020 was the biggest year in merch for GMP Records. Yeah. I've done merch, including the Lifers album and all the all the swag in between. Yeah, I mean, but was that just? Uh, I mean, when we're out on tour selling stuff on tour, do you you count that as well? No, I don't count that. It's it's just what I what I ship out. Okay, so people haven't had a chance to buy merch at shows, so that so you are the the only places they can get it, which must make you feel kind of powerful, right? I I, I, I can tell. You know, you're laid out in front of the all of the the swag. You're lording over it, right? <laughs> so Scott, what was it like the first time you went out after Gabe settled down and? didn't go out with you um it was a little weird but even then like it's not like we got like a big time tour manager to go out with us brian uh uh who was the drummer we mm -hmm. should have on the show as well um 
he started doing the tour managing because he had done it before for Liz Fair. Uh, so, so once again, it, it's always been like the merch and the tour managing and all that stuff has always kind of been in house and people that we know and that we trust. And I think more importantly that, that are, you know, part of the band, you know, it's part of the, the crew, part of the guys. Um, so I think that in, in what, whatever, whatever reason that we did that or how we fell into that, that's really worked out. And the way it is now, it's, it's completely, uh, you know, it's just two of us. It's just me and Ryan or Ryan and I, just me. No, I, yeah, it's just me, me and Ryan out on the road. So we're doing everything. Yeah. That's wild. A two man band with no tour manager. And, and that's, that's like unheard of. Yeah. yeah. Well, you got to do what you got to do. That's part of the lifers thing is that if you want to survive, you know, you've got to give up things. And, and if you're addicted to the ideas or if you're addicted to the things that you had when you were at your highest level, you're not going to keep going. You're not going to last. And, and, and the idea of becomes about why are you in this? What are you really in this for? And, you know, so those things have got to go. And, and honestly, I, I don't really miss any of those things. I miss you sometimes, Gabe, but that, that's about it. So I think that's probably a good place to sort of end. Thank you. Thank you guys. Uh, and thanks to everybody for listening to the, uh, the pilot episode. Um, this will get better. I think we're going to get Gabe a, uh, a mic. Right, Gabe? Yeah, this isn't good enough, I guess. I, I got to get, <laughs> the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, what do you call a penis shaped thing? What, what is that called? Phallic? kind of microphone the, uh, the phallic the 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 uh the david letterman thing that i got in front of my face mine's got pretty like bumblebee